How do you find the courage and motivation to keep going when life just throws one major challenge after another at you? We will learn how to do this in today's episode. Hello, and welcome to Elder Health Connection, a podcast where I gather innovators in elder health care to discuss their unique perspectives on caregiving and care receiving. My name is Caroline Morris, and I use my combined experience in biochemistry, physical therapy, health coaching, and growing up next door to my grandparents to dig deep into the complexities of aging and then draw out practical solutions that can fit into your life. I record this show from my home in Alexandria, Virginia, sometimes with the input from my dogs, Benny and Barry. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Elder Health Connection. So I wanted to first just take a moment and pause and celebrate 25 episodes ahead of today. Um, I think that's an important milestone for me, at least, in getting this little podcast off the ground. And as you'll hear in our interview today, it took me almost two years to get it together to start this podcast. So getting 25 episodes done is something I'm proud of. I hope you've enjoyed them as you've been listening all along, or if you're new to this podcast, I hope you'll go back and listen to some of the past episodes because there's a lot of good content in there from just wonderful people that I've interviewed. And celebrating little successes is something that is key to the coaching philosophy. It's key to us reframing our thoughts and our minds so that we can bring about positive change when we actually start to pay attention to the positive change that's already happening in our lives, which fits in very nicely with today's speaker. Our guest is Terry Tucker, and he has a fascinating life story. He's worked in multiple industries, multiple areas. He has had his own major health condition that you'll learn more about. And he has pulled together all of his experiences to help the rest of us learn how to keep up our motivation in very challenging times. And he does it in a way that I find to be very approachable and not overstated. And what I mean by that is he doesn't just ignore how hard times can be, how illness can be (laughs) utterly demoralizing at times, how physical disabilities or limitations can impact almost all aspects of our life. He keeps that very present, but he also doesn't just kind of sink into it and live in a place of depression or suffering, resentment. So I think he's a great person to learn from if we are in a season of life where going through very difficult times, which I know a lot of people are right now. And it could be your health, it could be other aspects of your life. And Terry, through this interview and through his work, helps us to figure out how to do something about it. Just the other day, I've been participating in a meditation mini series at the yoga studio I go to and I've been learning a lot about the underlying philosophies of the yoga tradition and one thing that came up that I found interesting was that 
removing obstacles in our life doesn't mean we actually get rid of the obstacles. It means we start to look at and appreciate and experience the obstacles as something that helps our souls to grow. And by thinking of them that way, they no longer become obstacles and that's how they're removed. And it reminded me a lot of my conversation with Terry. It reminds me of the work of coaching and it is not easy, but it is so rewarding when we can start to shift our obstacles into opportunities for growth. And with that, I will leave you to enjoy Terry Tucker. Hi, Terry. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Caroline. I'm looking forward to talking with you. I am as well. From what I know of you, you just have such a rich history of experience, both in your personal life and your work life, that I think will help us to better understand motivation as it comes to our health. Yeah, I, I, you know, sometimes I look at my resume and figure one of these days I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up kind of thing. You know, it's been kind of diverse and sort of all over the map. There's not a real, real linear progression by any means, but I've certainly learned a lot and had a a lot of fun with all of it. So I, I have no complaints about what I've been able to do. Very good. Yeah, it makes me feel good when I see other people that change jobs and careers a lot. Even though I've stayed in healthcare, I've changed roles quite a bit. And I find it to be beneficial, like a cross-training type of approach to life. So do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and a brief overview of your personal history, I guess? Sure. So uh, born and raised in Chicago, I am the oldest of three boys. You can't tell this from looking at me or from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. And I actually played uh, college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, despite having three knee surgeries in high school. Uh, When I graduated from college, I moved home to find a job. This was really going to date myself now, but this was long before the internet was available Mm -hmm. to help people find jobs. Fortunately, I did find that first job in the corporate headquarters of Wendy's International. I was uh, in the marketing department. Unfortunately, I ended up living with my parents for the next three and a half years as I helped my mom care for my father and my grandmother, who were both dying of different forms of cancer. Professionally, as I said, started out at Wendy's, then kind of shifted and went into healthcare administration, hospital administration. And then I made a real major pivot in my life and became a police officer and Part of that was being an undercover narcotics investigator. Everybody laughs at that one and say, you were six foot eight and you were an undercover narcotics <laughs> investigator. And another part of that was being a SWAT team hostage negotiator. Then I started my own school security consulting business, uh, Coach Girls High School Basketball, made the brilliant business decision to start a motivational speaking business right in the middle of the COVID pandemic, and then published my first book in 2020. But for the last 10 years, I've been dealing with this rare form of of cancer of melanoma that I'm sure we're going to talk about here in a minute. And then I guess finally, my wife and I have been married for 28 years. We have one child, a daughter, who's a graduate of the United States Air Force Academy and is an officer in the new branch of the military, the Space Force. Oh, very good. I didn't know that was a real branch. I watched the show on Netflix, but <laughs> everybody has. Yeah, and that's, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's a very new branch. It started in uh, actually Trump's last year in office. Uh, okay. The Space Force became, you know, a branch. It's still a part of the Air Force. You know, kind of like the Marine Corps is part of the Navy. So uh, it's it's that kind of a thing. But you know, they're they're going through their growing pains right yeah. now. But my daughter's certainly having a good time with it. Oh, that's so exciting to be on the forefront of that. It is. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about health and healthcare. You've witnessed it from many different perspectives in your life. Can we start with how you would define health for yourself? That's really a good question. And I, you know, I kind of like the the World Health Organization definition of a you know, a state of complete physical, psychological, and social well-being. You know, it's not about, do I have a disease or, you know, do I have an injury? It's about, 
your overall well-being. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at it because we always kind of, you know, we sort of label people. We, we love to label people, in, in, you know, for whatever reason. And, you know, it's like you're, you're healthy or, or you're sick. Well, how do you know that? You know, you mm-hmm. don't know my state of well-being. So I, I guess, you know, sort of the clinical definition would be that, you know, the total state of well-being of the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that definition as well. I think it's so much more encompassing than just managing a disease or not having a formal diagnosis. Right. And maybe how has your perception changed as you've evolved from an injured high school athlete to a caregiver for family members working in healthcare, and then now this melanoma diagnosis as well? You know, when, when I was reading the questions before we, we jumped on the podcast, I, you know, I, I was thinking about what, what's the, what's the common denominator here? What, what, mm-hmm. what is, is one thing that I can sort of point to? And, and the word that kept coming up in my mind was support. You know, when, when I, when I was in high school, I had three knee surgeries and I mean, it, it was, it, it was before arthroscopic surgery was available. I mean, my second knee surgery, they put me in a cast from my hip to my ankle for an entire summer. I mean, just things that they don't do anymore. Mm-hmm. But, but I, needed, I needed support at that time. And the, the support was my, my parents. And, and I had a, a very good friend of mine who, I, I mean, this was before social media. This was before the internet. This was, I mean, so it was basically, I, I am confined to the house all day long. And well, you can watch television or you can read. That's pretty much your, you know, your go-tos. There's mm-hmm. nothing else really to do. And I had a very good friend of mine who would come over after work every night and would stick me in the back of his car with my, you know, my leg laid out on his back seat and just take me to his house. Or, you know, we'd just drive around. It was just something that, you know, I needed four new walls to look at, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So it was that support there. And then when my father and grandmother were dying, it was now I was the person giving the support, you know, to them in, in their journey. And now, you know, I'm, I'm back with my cancer journey. I'm back needing support, whether it's from my medical team, whether it's from my friends, whether it's from my family, whether it's from my God, you know, I need I need support. So it's sort of kind of, you know, sort of like a roller coaster, kind of ups and downs. And you play different roles, wear different hats. But I think support has been the, the, the defining thing, whether I mean, even in, in healthcare, I, I was not directly involved in patient care and the patients were very happy for that. But, you know, I was supporting the medical teams and, and, and things like that, which, again, here I am in a support role and that. And and I think that's it's important. And whether you need the support or whether you're giving the support, support really kind of is, I guess, the overarching part of all of that. Yeah, I think that's such a good observation and way to think about it because we really can't do it alone, no matter what the role is. And we also can't do it for another person. We can't go through the disease process or the injury for someone else, but we can support them along the way. What were some ways that helped you either ask for support or be okay saying yes to getting support that can be tricky for some people it, it has been and you know i i've been an athlete my whole life life you know i i've been in law enforcement i am not the type of person that asks for help and and that's that's wrong i mean plain and simple it's wrong i, I mean we we all have we all have a breaking point. You know, we all have certain needs that, yes, we would like to think that we're independent and we can, we can meet those needs. But when you're facing an illness, when you, you know, you've had surgery and and things like that, you know, you, you need that kind of support. And one of the things that really kind of bothered me when I got sick, when I got cancer was this attitude and and I've done this. So, you know, I, I mean, I'm as guilty as everybody else. You know, what happens when somebody's going into the hospital, even if there's something good, like you're going to have a baby or something like that? What do people always say to you? Hey, if you need anything, you know, give me a call. And you come to realize that those are people that are trying to take themselves off the hook. You know, it's like, I, yeah, I want to help you, but eh, I don't really want to get involved in this and, and deal with it. You know, it's sort of like sitting on the sidelines and pretending you're playing in the game. I mean, you're really not. And the things that you need to do at your house, you know, take the garbage out, walk the dog, go to the store, pick the kids up from school. Those are the same things I need to have done at my house. 
I just don't have time to think about how you can help me. And I remember after I had my first cancer surgery, I did not need to stay in the hospital. And, and I've been home about 10 minutes and, and my cell phone rang and it was my 95 year old friend, Bud. Bud had been in World War II, just a great guy. And he said, Terry, I know you just got home from the hospital, but can I come over for just five minutes? I, I just got something for your family. I'm like, yeah, sure, bud, come over. About 15 minutes later, here's Bud standing in our living room with a fully cooked chicken and a pan of cream cheese Danish that he had bought at Costco. And he was like, here, you've got dinner for tonight and you've got breakfast for tomorrow. Bud didn't say, hey, if you need anything, let me know. Bud actually got involved and said, here, here's food for your family, you know, for, for the next two meals. And, and that meant so much to us. And like I said, I, I've been guilty of saying that too. Hey, you know, if you need anything, because yeah, yeah, I wanted to help, but I didn't really want to help. If you love me, if you care about me, if you want to help me, just get involved, just do something. Even if it's mm -hmm. the wrong thing, it's going to be appreciated by myself and my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's such a good thing to point out. I definitely say it too and get irritated when it's sent to me because it's so nonspecific. And then it puts, you know, the burden on me to then delegate, which is requires a lot of thought power in a time when I'm just lucky to, you know, get to the next room or something exactly. like that. Right. So I like that and actually anticipating the need and doing something about it instead of just generic phrasing. Great. So I know a lot of your focus now is on motivation. Did that start to come out from your cancer experience or how did you end up thinking about motivation as a career path? I, I think, you know, being an athlete, being in law enforcement, you know, certainly these last 10 years, I, I think the whole the whole deal around motivation or, or mindset, I mean, mindset's probably a better, a better term or a better word than, than motivation. You know, motivation is kind of emotional. You, mm -hmm. you know, it can kind of, kind of go up and down based on, you know, I'm having a good day. I'm having a bad day, how, how motivated I am, you know, but, but I do talk a lot about finding your, your purpose or your, your why or your reason in life. And, you know, I think that's, that's what motivation is. And, and so I, I've always, you know, I, I mean, I have good days and bad days, just like everybody. I mean, you're looking at me now. There's no S on my chest. I don't have a cape and fly around with magical powers. You know, I have bad days. I get down. I feel sorry for myself. But I find myself when I when I do that is that you're 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 looking inward. You know, it's it's a, hey, this is all about me and you know, woe is me and all that kind of stuff. And and I think for at least for me. I found a way to overcome that is to now look outward. I, I go to the hospital every three weeks to be treated for, for the tumors in my lungs. And I can always find somebody who's worse off than I am. I can always find somebody who, you know, needs a pat on the back or just somebody to say, you know, Hey, how you doing? You want to have a cup of coffee, whatever. And we're all going to experience pain in our life. Pain is inevitable. And it doesn't have to be, you know, cancer pain or even any kind of an illness. You could, you know, I know this is elder care and this may sound, you know, break up with your boyfriend, or your girlfriend. I, I mean, I guess that's possible. Yeah. You know, you, you, you could, you know, have a fender bender on the on the way to church or, you know, if, if you're still working, somebody at work gets a promotion that that, you know, you think you deserve. Pain is inevitable in our lives. Suffering's optional. Suffering's what you do with that pain. Do you use that pain to make you a stronger and more determined individual? Or do you wallow in it and feel sorry for yourself and want other people to feel sorry for you? It's a choice about how you want to grab it. I mean, when I go to treatment now, you know, there, there are two handles. It's uh, do I have to go to treatment or do I get to go to treatment? And it's it depends on which handle you pick. And I mean, certainly there are days when I'm like, man, I have to go to treatment. And then there are days where, you know what, I get to go to treatment because I'm going to make a difference in somebody's life. Maybe that somebody is me, but Sometimes, you know, I always think sort of, especially with a, a clinical trial drug, maybe it won't be me, but maybe it'll be somebody, somebody down the road that, that I can help or that can, you know, benefit from what the doctors are learning from all my blood work and my scans and things like that. Yeah, it's so important to realize there's a choice between what we do with the pain. Do you, looking back, do you think you were someone who always had sort of a positive 
outlook on life and purpose-driven, or is it something you developed over time? I think it's something I developed over time. I, I, I mean, I certainly, you know, there were times in my life when I was, you know, the glass is half empty. And, and there are times now where, you know, I, I'm, the glass is half full and, and I don't care how bad it is. It, we're we're going to work this out. And so I, I think that's a that's a process of maturing and growing and understanding what's really important. You know, it's it's not about what we have. It's about what we give. And, and I've always believed, even from an early age, that that our purpose in life, regardless of you know, what we feel our, our focus is, is to serve. You know, if you believe in God to serve your God, you know, to serve yourself, to serve your fellow man, you know, to make a positive difference in other people's lives. And the older I get and, and the closer I probably come to the end of my life, I realize that that's the important stuff. You know, the money, the power, the influence, the kind of car you drive, the house you live in, none of that stuff really matters. Because at the end, I mean, the only thing that goes with us beyond the grave is really the love that we have in our heart. And for, for most of us, that that's how we were conceived. And that's what we were given by our parents. So I mean, to have that in the beginning to take it through your life, and then to take it on after your life, I, I, I think is, you know, people don't realize that, you know, that's success is not power, influence and money success is what do you do with your life? How do you serve other people while you're here? And then take that and move on with it and see where it takes you. Yeah. Were there any moments in time that helped you to shift that definition of success or any practices that you do to orient you more towards service and love as, as meaningful? Yeah. I, I mean, when I was first diagnosed with cancer, I, I had a couple surgeries. Uh, my, my cancer appeared on the bottom of my foot. And so I had that cut out and I had all the lymph nodes in my groin removed as well. And then my doctor put me on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon to help keep the disease from coming back. And interferon for me was just a horrible, nasty, debilitating drug. The, the side effects were that I had severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week after each injection. And I took those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And that wasn't even a cure. That was yeah. as my oncologist used to say, we're kicking the can down the road and trying to buy you more time for more therapies to be developed. And there were times during that period where I literally prayed to die. I, I mean, I was so sick of being sick all the time that it was just like, okay, God, take me out of this. I, mm -hmm. I, I'm done. But God didn't take me out of it. You know, I, I think what God gave me is the strength to realize that I had so much more to give to myself. And I remember, and, and, and hang with me on this story, because it's gonna, it's gonna get a little weird. Um, sure. <laughs> there was, a, there was a, a, a study that I read about back in the 1950s with a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And it was a very simple study. He took rats, that's this is where it kind of gets weird. He took rats and he put them in a tank of water that were over their head. And he wanted to see how long the rats could tread water before they would sink and drown. And the average rat treaded water for about 15 minutes. And, and just as they were getting ready to sink, he reached in and grabbed them, pulled them out, dried them off, and let them rest for a while. And they took the exact same rats, put them back in the exact same tank of water. And the second time around, those rats, on average, treaded water for 60 hours. Wow. Now think about that. 15 minutes, yeah. that's all I can do. I'm, gonna, I'm just not going to, you know, hey, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to die. I'm going to sink and I'm going to drown. 15 minutes is all I could do. The second time around, 60 hours, which said to me two things. Number one, the importance of hope in our lives. We have to believe that at some point in time, somewhere down the road, life will get better for us. And the second thing was just how much more our physical bodies can handle than we ever thought they could. I mean, I think I said this before. Everybody has a breaking point. Everybody has a point where it's just, I can't do this anymore. But that breaking point is so much farther down the road than we ever think it is. I mean, we get to a point where, oh, this is a little uncomfortable. Oh, I can't do this anymore. No, trust me. You can, you can do so much more than you ever think you can. And like I said, that, that end point, that where I, I'm totally done is so much further down the road. But people just quit and give up and, and can't do it anymore because they get a little bit of resistance or they have a little bit of pain or things are a little bit uncomfortable. You can do a whole lot more than you think you can. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I'm just thinking back to early pandemic when I thought a month was the breaking point of lockdown. And here we are over two years later, we could do it. But yes, that rat study is fascinating. It's been a while since I had heard of it. So I'm glad you brought it back up again. And did you find that to be true for you that there were times when you thought maybe with your symptoms or how you were feeling that you were at your breaking point and then the next time it came around, you were better equipped to handle the scenario? I, I think so. I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think I, I'm, you know, again, I, I'm a human being, you know, I, 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 I have bad days, you know, things are, things get difficult for me. I'm, I'm down. I don't feel good. And, and yeah, I mean, there, like I said, there were so many days when I was going through that interferon therapy that it was like, I, I just, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't take another injection. I can't, I, I mean, we've all had the flu and I mean, you know, I even think back on it now and it's like every week for five years. That's I mean, I remember my, when my oncologist suggested it and I had a, I was a basketball coach at the time. And, and one of the players on my team, her grandmother was on interferon for a, a liver situation. And I remember talking to her and I said, you know, how is it? I, she's like, yeah, it's a little tough, but you know, Hey, you're only going to be on it for a short period of time. And so, you know, I went back to my oncologist. like, okay, I can do this. You know, Hey, I'm probably only going to be on it for six months or so. And she kind of looked at me and she's like, I, I'd like you to be on it for five years. And, and I looked at her like, you want me to have the flu every week for five years? I, I said, you're nuts. I said, yeah. that, that's just not something a human being, you know, can do. They're, they're, you're not equipped. To, she's like, yeah, I, I know it's going to be hard. She said, but just do the best you can. And I was like, you're, you're crazy. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know what, how else to, uh, you know, to, to put it in. It's it mm -hmm. just, it just seems like some enormous feat that's just so outside the realm of, of possibility. But then I look at it. I mean, I did it for four years and seven months. So I came, I was five months short of that five year mark that she wanted me to do. And, and I've always said this, I'm the biggest wimp in the world. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. You know, when you get those, Hey, I want you to do this therapy. Oh, this therapy is terrible. Yeah, I know it is, but you can still do it. And I think that just goes to how much more physical bodies can handle than we give it credit for. It mm -hmm. will, the body can go so much further. It's the mind that you've got to convince. It's the mindset that you've got to say, I can do this because the body can handle it. It's your mind that ends up shutting down. It's like, nope, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Your physical body can still usually handle it. Yeah. So what are some ways we can train the mind to realize that we can handle difficult situations when everything else is screaming that we need to stop. I, I guess I, and I recommend this to, to everybody that I have an opportunity to talk to because I, I try to do this every day of my life. And, and I guess, let me back up. I mean, let's say for example, and, and I'll just use this as, cause it's coming off the top of my head. Let's say you want to get better at sales. You know, you want to be a better salesperson if that's what your job is. Okay. Well, that, that goal is, is pretty enormous. It's pretty big. But what I always say to people is, what if you broke that down? What if you broke it down to, what if you got 1% better at sales every day? So at the end of 30 days, you're 30% better. At the end of a quarter, you're almost 100% better at sales than when you started. And that's a little bit more palatable. You know, it's kind of the old joke, how do you eat the elephant, you know, one bite at a time. And, mm -hmm. and so, you, you know, what I try to recommend to people is do one thing every day that makes you uncomfortable, that makes you nervous, that scares you, that's potentially embarrassing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. You know, I, I mean, the other day, I, you know, and I, I use this example, I hate going to the dentist. But the other day, I picked up the phone and made you know, an appointment for my six-month appointment. That was uncomfortable. If you do that, and it's like, oh, that's no big deal. You're right. It's not a big deal. But it's an uncomfortable thing. You know, I mean, maybe you want to get up and go running tomorrow morning. Or maybe you, whatever it is, whatever you decide, oh, yeah, but that's hard. Or I better do a bit earlier. Or this is a little uncomfortable. If you do something uncomfortable every single day, when the big things in life hit, when we lose somebody who's close to us, when we lose our job, you know, when we get some kind of a, a, a health diagnosis that we don't like, you'll be so much more resilient to handle those things if you do those little things every day. It's the people that, you know, that sort of casually go through their life and really don't spend any time on this. 
And then all of a sudden, these things hit them right in the face. They're, they're totally unprepared. They're totally unprepared physically. They're totally unprepared mentally. They're totally unprepared emotionally to handle these things. So if you challenge yourself, I, when I was coaching high school basketball, I used to constantly remind my players that they needed to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. And if you can live in that uncomfortable state, and, it, and if you think about it, the mind is kind of like the body. So if you went to a gym and you picked up a 10 pound weight and you did, did 10 arm curls, but you didn't find that movement to be difficult, your muscles never going to, to grow. But if you take that same 10 pound weight and you do arm curls until you exhaust your muscle, then your muscle will break down. And then when it heals, it'll get bigger and stronger. Well, that same tactic works for your mind. You know, when you do difficult things, when you do uncomfortable things, when you do things that sort of stretch you and make you get outside your comfort zone, that's when your mind grows. That's when your mind or your mindset can handle a lot of the things that you're going to experience in life, as opposed to those people where everything's comfortable, everything's good. Well, if you're always comfortable, you're, you're, you're never going to grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, exercise physiology, we call that the overload principle, which I think applies nicely to mental training as well, because we can feel overloaded. And it's reminding me to the patients I've worked with that tend to have the hardest time when an injury or illness occurs are the ones who have the most rigid routines before the injury and just have a hard time conceiving of life in a different way or themselves in a different way. But what you're encouraging us to do is intentionally change ourselves and push ourselves in kind of micro doses each day so that when the big stressors happen, we have a little bit more capacity to handle them. So besides the dentist example, do you have any other go-to examples of ways we can start to challenge ourselves or push outside the comfort zone? Yeah, I, I think that just, I mean, for me, you know, I, I had my, my leg amputated in 2020. And I mean, it's it's been over two years. I am still learning how to walk with a prosthetic leg. You know, when, when you're six foot eight, falling is not an option. You know, you get hurt when you fall and things like that. So, you know, to, to strap on that leg every day, to do the things, you know, and I have an above the knee amputation mm -hmm. as opposed to a below the knee, which makes it even more difficult to, to walk with a prosthetic. Now, I did walk my daughter down the aisle back in October when, when she was getting married, and that, that was my goal. And it's, it, it's just... It's physically hard. It's physically taxing for me, you know, to put everything on and to put the prosthetic on and then to try to walk using, I mean, you know this, you know, your, your butt and your hip muscles, you know, it's a whole different way to learn how to walk. And, and the other part of that, that that's hard for me is the trust factor, the, the mm -hmm. trust of having, you know, I can't feel that leg. I can't, you know, it, it's, I'm not getting the sensory perception of, you know, oh, that it's touching the floor. I mean, I've got an amazing prosthetic leg. It, it has a, a, a microprocessor in the knee and it has a gyroscope in the calf. So it knows whether I'm in front of the, the prosthetic or whether I'm behind the prosthetic and it acts accordingly. So, I mean, technology wise, it's an amazing piece of equipment. I just don't trust it enough mm -hmm. yet. So, I mean, one of the things for me that, you know, I, I just, it, it, it's a chore, it's, it's uncomfortable, it's hard, but that's what you need to do to walk. That's what you need to do to, to get out. And, and, and I mean, that's not something I do every day. It should be something I do every day, but, but things like that, things that, oh man, I don't want to do that. That's uncomfortable. Whatever that is in your life, do it, do that thing. You know, and for it, it doesn't have to be the same thing every day. It could be different things, you know, it's like, oh, I don't want to go to the doctor today, or oh, I don't want to go for the scan today, or I don't want to, you know, I, I don't know, whatever it is, you know, I, my doctor wants me, you know, to, to not lay in bed all day, but, you know, to get up, oh, that hurts and it's uncomfortable. Whatever those uncomfortable things are in your life, and, and they're different for all of us, figure out what they are and spend a few minutes every day doing them. Because mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, then the next day, it's, yeah, it's a pain, but yeah, I got through it yesterday. And, and now you're building that mental resilience. Now you're building that elasticity in your brain. That's like, yeah, I, I can do this. I can handle this. And then everything else starts to, sto uh, to snowball, you know, and mm -hmm. all of a sudden things that are difficult. So yeah, it's difficult, but 
it's not impossible. So mm -hmm. give it a try, see what happens. Yeah, and I think that also helps to eliminate some of the all or none thinking. So thinking back to your example of walking with the prosthesis and it, it is just so much more work to do it than to walk with two original legs. But I've worked with patients in the past who just go to worst case scenario, I'll never walk again, you know, I'll never, ever do this. Meanwhile, they've taken a couple steps with me. I'm like, well, you just walked today, but they don't think it counts as walking because it's not what they're used to. But you're encouraging us just to do those little bits anyway. And then that can eventually build up to a bigger sense of walking or whatever the goal may be. I mean, my physical therapist, yeah, sometimes will just say, look, if you don't feel like it, just put it on, put it on and sit in the chair. You don't even have to walk with it, but, mm -hmm. but just, you know, and, and again, and, and I mean, as you, you know, as a physical therapist, just putting all the, the gear on before you even put the prosthetic on the socks and the liner and all that yeah. kind of stuff, it, you know, it is a kind of pain in the neck, but yeah, I mean, nobody ever promised life was going to be easy. Nobody ever promised it was going to be perfect. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, those little things, those ugly things, those hard things, those are eventually what get you to the point when, the, as I said, the big things in life hit us, you're going to be more resilient to handle those things. Yeah, definitely. Do you think it's ever too late to start working on this or training ourselves to do these little micro challenges? I don't, I don't think so. I, yeah. I, I mean, you know, you, you talked about the, the patients that you dealt with, you know, that are, you know, worst case scenario and they're, you know, they're, they're looking in the past, you know, they're looking, this is the way it was. And, and I'm never, it's never going to be the way it was. So, you know, I'm totally focused on the past. I can't do anything. You can't do anything. Nobody can do anything about the past and except hopefully learn from it, but you can start today. You can start from where you are right now and make positive changes in your life. I don't care if you're, you know, you're eight or 18 or 80, you know, it, I don't think it, it really matters. It's just gotta be, do you want to do it? Is it something that, that is a, is a priority for you? So I, I don't think it's ever too late to do anything. I, a lot of times I'll, I'll talk about the story uh, of, you know, finding our purpose or our passion or our why mm -hmm. in life. And, you know, I always, the, the story I always tell is about Colonel Harlan Sanders, who started Kentucky Fried Chicken. Now, I don't know if that was his purpose in life. I, I'm going to assume that it is, that it was. But he started that franchise after he retired, when he was in his 60s. So imagine if, you know, when he was 30 or 40, he's, nope, I'm good, comfortable where I am, not going to push myself, not going to move forward. I'm good where I am. And if he hadn't done that, we wouldn't have Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I'm sure I could come up with other examples of people that, you know, really started or made things happen in their life very late in life. So I don't think, you know, I'm too old or I can't, that, that has nothing to do with it. You know, age is just a number. I, and I, the older I get, the really more I really believe that. So I, I really think it's, do you want to do it? And, and how much, you know, how much are you willing to put in the time to be uncomfortable, to sit in that ugliness and, you know, and yeah, there's nobody around. And, you know, it, it, there was a, it was a football player who played for the San Francisco 49ers by the name of Jerry Rice. And he used to say, today I will do what others won't so that tomorrow I can do what others can't, you know? So uh, it, it's that kind of a, you, you know, I mean, sometimes it's a competition. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the competition is against you and your mind and it, I, I don't think it's ever too late to start to do something that you feel is worthwhile in your life. Yeah, I would agree. So let's say someone is in a situation that objectively or rationally doesn't look good, a life-threatening situation or a bad circumstances. For you, what's the balance between just accepting things as they are and not fighting against the inevitable, but also still challenging yourself and having a will to improve. Does that question make sense? It does. Yeah, it, it, it does. I, and, and I'm trying to think where I want to start with that. You know, I mean, I mean, let's face it, life is terminal. I mean, we're all going to die. And, and I remember when I had my leg amputated and I had these, found out these tumors in my lungs, I went with my wife to the mortuary, to the cemetery, to the church, and I planned my funeral. And because I give, you know, talks in person and I, I go on these podcasts and I talk about motivation and the need to keep moving forward, 
I actually got some brushback from people who were like, well, you know, don't you think planning your funeral is kind of defeatist? You know, and I, I kind of had a response <laughs> like the last time I checked, we're all going to die. Don't think anybody's working on a cure for life right now. You know, everybody's going to die, but not everybody is going to live. And I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that went, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life. And I think those are the key words in this saying. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. And I think the way you do that is you live your life. You find the reason you were put on the face of this earth. You use your unique gifts and talents, and you live that reason. I, I mean, I've seen a lot of people die, both when I was a policeman and, and certainly during these last 10 years with cancer. And, and I'm going to make a huge generalization here. But the people who seemed to die, what you and I would call you know, happy or peaceful deaths, seem to be the people that did something with their lives. They found their purpose in life and they lived it. Whereas the people who, you know, were going, I, going kicking and screaming, you know, I want another month, I want another year. Those never, those seem to be the people who never did anything with their life. So I think it's real important that if you, if you find your purpose in life, and again, I don't think it's ever too late to look for that purpose as long as you look for it with an open heart. If you find that purpose and you live it, at least for me, death is not nearly as scary because I did find that purpose. I mean, we're all going to die, but I want to die becoming. I want to die learning. I mean, I'm not dead yet, obviously. You know, my, my oncologist showed me my CAT scan from back in 2020 when I found out I had these tumors in the lungs and I was going to lose my leg. And, and I, I have, I mean, I have no real medical background, but, you know, I, I had fluid all around the pleural spaces of my lungs. I had these big tumors in my lungs. And I looked at my oncologist and I was like, how was I alive? <laughs> you know, and he kind of shook his head and smiled. And he's like, I have no idea, you know, yeah. which said to me, God's not done with me yet. So I'm, I don't worry when I die, how I die, where I die, way above my pay grade. So I don't spend a whole lot of time worrying about it. I spend more time concentrating on living the life that I'm supposed to live. I don't know if that answers your question, but. I think so. And that's a, a beautiful way to state it. So Terry, what are some ways that people can start to find their purpose when they're confused, just don't know what it is, don't have like a strong burning passion for a particular thing? Yeah, I, I, I think the first thing you need to do is, is search for it with an open heart and, and realize that, you know, it, it may not come today. It may not come 10 years from now. It may not come 20 years from now, but it's important to keep searching for it. And, and I guess let me back up for a minute. I think a lot of times we feel that our purpose or our passion or our why, whatever you want to call it, has to be our job or our, our profession or our occupation. It doesn't, you know, I mean, you could have a job over here and that's what you do to pay the bills, but your purpose is to, you know, coach or to do a podcast or to write or, or whatever it is. And I always say, especially, and I know this is an elder care uh, podcast, but I always say, especially to young people, if there's something in your heart, something in your soul, and I guess this could apply to anybody that, that you believe you're supposed to do, but it scares you, go ahead and do it. Because at the end of your life, the things you're going to regret are not going to be the things you did. They're going to be the things you didn't do. And by then, it's going to be too late to go back and do them. So I, I think you, you need to constantly continue to search for it. And, and there, there are things that you are good at. There are, there are talents that you have. There, and, and there was a, an architect by the name of, this guy's got a great name, Buckminster Fuller who had, had a saying, and, and I'm going to kind of mess it up a little bit because I don't have it totally memorized, but he used to say that for people that were trying to find their purpose, it was like, what, what is, what's out there that you see that you either know or have some interest in that if you didn't get involved, wouldn't get accomplished? So what, what do you see out there? And, and, and I think people, one of the big issues we have is we limit ourselves. You know, we, we want to, it's like, oh, that, that's not quite where I am. So I'm not going to get involved in that. Well, if it's on the, you know, the cusp or sort of, you know, on the circle, why not take a shot at it? You know, and the other thing I think that, that causes us not to find our purpose 
is we expect everything to line up perfectly. Like, you know, this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and then this is gonna, and then I'm going to have my purpose. Well, it's, it's usually not like that. It's usually kind of, you know, it, it's all over the place. And another thing that I think we have a problem with is failure. We don't want to fail. You know, I, I don't want to wait a minute. And, and one of the chapters in my book is entitled, most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. And I know I've done that. I know I've been, you know, to a point where, oh, I, I think I should do this. This would make sense for me. Oh, wait a minute. What if I'm not smart enough? What if I'm not good enough? What if I fail? And what are people going to say about me? That's thinking with your fears and your insecurities and not using your minds. So the fact that, you know, things don't line up perfectly, the, the fact that, you know, everything isn't just, just right, that's okay. You know, maybe that makes sense. I'll try that. Well, okay, that was right for me or that wasn't right for me. I, when I was in college, I went to a, a chamber orchestra concert one night. Didn't know anything about chamber music. Didn't really like chamber music. But what that led me to was symphony music. I loved the symphony, not a big fan of chamber. So, I mean, if I would have closed myself off, ah, chamber music, I don't know anything about it. I don't want to do that. I would have never found symphony music that I love. So don't think that it's got to be linear. Think that, you know, yeah, maybe that's something I'd like to try and then try it. Maybe it's the right thing. Maybe it's not. But then be open to something else and, and try that. I, I mean, I think life is a little bit different than when at least my parents were growing up where people stayed with one company for their entire career. I'm not so sure that 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 companies are that vested in their employees anymore. And, and, and as a result, employees aren't vested in the company anymore. So do what makes sense for you or do what you think might be good for you, regardless of whether it's scary or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that reminds me. I think for about two years, I was about to start a podcast and the, you know, the fear of failure was pretty present and the unknown and not, you know, all the not knowing. And then just doing it, I actually relaxed into it because it was, you know, it wasn't that bad. So yeah, um, exactly. yeah. it's the fear of the unknown. You didn't know right. anything about it. Yeah. Right. It's, I mean, I remember my first podcast guest, somebody contacted me and said, would you be a guest on my podcast? My first question was, what's a podcast? <laughs> and I had no idea. And I was so nervous. I literally had notes taped all around the camera that mm -hmm. if, if they ask this question, okay, I'm going to read this. Okay, now I can tell. It was so disjointed and so chopped. It was terrible. Yeah. You know, but you're right. You get to a point where now it's comfortable and I, I know what I'm saying. And, that, and you know, and you're a good host, so you've obviously figured it out. Oh, well, thank you. But yeah, there was a lot of, you know, like, who am I to be starting a podcast or who would want to listen to this? And what if all the what ifs? So like you said, just getting actually doing it can create some clarity and some more comfort with with the situation. Well, you've given us such great information about using our mind, tweaking some of our thoughts and actions to help us navigate very real challenges. This isn't just like a bad weather day. This is very, you know, life and death in a lot of cases and, and big things. Do you have any closing thoughts or stories for us? Yeah, let me end with, with one final story. I, I really enjoy telling this story. Always been a big fan of westerns growing up. Uh, my mom and dad used to let me stay up late and watch, you know, Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And my favorite was Wild Wild West. 1993, the movie Tombstone debuted. Pretty much a huge blockbuster. It's still being shown on reruns on different channels now. It starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday and Wyatt Earp were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They're not made up characters just for the movie. And Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt Earp, most of his adult life was some form of a lawman. So these two men from entirely divergent backgrounds come together and form this very close bond, this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying of tuberculosis and a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The real Doc Holliday died in that sanitarium and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. 
And Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in this almost final scene of the movie, they're talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, you know, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And then he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt kind of nonchalantly says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal. There's just life. And get on with living yours. Caroline, you and I know people, I'm sure there's people out there listening to us that are sort of sitting back right now and saying, well, when this happens, I'll have a normal life. Or when that occurs, I'll have a successful life. Or when this arises, I'll have a significant life. I guess what I would like to leave you with is this. Don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there, find the reason you were put on the face of this earth, use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do, at the end of your life, I'm going to promise you two things. Number one, you're going to be a whole lot happier. And number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Yeah, that's such a beautiful story and thoughts to end with and reminding us that normal is just a myth <laughs> completely. Yeah. Terry, if people want to connect with you or learn from you further, what's the best place for them to go? I have a, a blog every day. I put up a thought for the day. And with that thought comes a question about maybe how you can apply that in your life. On Mondays, I put up the Monday morning motivational message, which is sometimes a video or a story that's a little bit longer. But you can, you can get access to me. You can leave me a message at motivationalcheck.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your experiences and your strategies for helping us navigate these difficult times. Well, thanks for having me on, Caroline. I enjoyed talking with you and hopefully our conversation is going to make a positive difference in somebody who listens to us. I'm sure it will. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and does not create a provider-patient relationship between us. If you have questions about your health, please speak to a qualified health professional. If you would like to learn more about working with me as your qualified health professional, please visit carolinemorris.com. Did you know that gratitude is good for your health? If you found value in this episode, please share it with a friend and leave a rating or review. To keep the connection going, subscribe to Elder Health Connection on your favorite podcast player to get immediate access to upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening. With love and gratitude, Caroline.